If you'll turn with me now, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, it wasn't that long ago that we used to watch live TV and it had commercials in it. Uh, these days, when we stream so much, we don't see as many commercials, but uh, I still remember when I used to sit down and, and try to watch a TV show and, and get my snack ready, my drink ready, and, uh, and I was prepared for a TV show that was going to be entertaining, and I was prepared for some commercials that were going to tell me about things I needed or maybe some funny commercials that were going to, to make me laugh. And so I would sit down and start watching uh, my show, and then every once in a while, this strange thing would happen. A, a commercial unlike any other commercial would come on. And this commercial was different because it starts off slow and it fades from black. And this piano music would start. And the, uh, the voice of Sarah McLachlan would come on singing in the arms of the angels. And then you'd see these, these, these pets, these dogs and these cats, but they're limping. And they're scarred and they're chained up and there's flies all over them. And I thought, this is not what I signed up for. It was not entertaining. It was not comedic. It was not funny. It was not a happy moment. And, and, and there's that moment of shock where you think, why is this on my TV? Why are they making me watch this? See, most commercials rely on a certain amount of self-interest. They think you're going to want something that's cheaper or something that's better. They, they want, you're going to want something that's going to improve your life. But this commercial is not one of those. This is an SPCA commercial, and, and they use it to draw on compassion. They use it because they know that when we see these images of the helpless, when we see these images of, of the injured, it's going to draw and it's going to convict us. It's going to make us sad and it's going to draw on our compassion and make us want to help. Another commercial like that, some of you remember the, the Christian Children's Fund? Uh, it's not what it's called anymore, but it used to be called the Christian Children's Fund. And, and there was a gentleman on there who would introduce you to Maria. And Maria lived in a, a country that's not near here. And Maria would go through the trash every day, picking out aluminum cans so they could gather it for their family so they could have enough money to buy a meal. And he would tell you that for just 80 cents a day, you can make a difference in the life of Maria and other kids like her. And it drew on that compassion. It drew on that, that sense of justice that we have, that sense of wanting to help. Compassion motivates action. That's what that commercial was built about. When we can see needs, when we can sympathize with pain or helplessness, we're moved, we're moved out of our complacency, we're moved out of our indifference, and we want to take a step to help and to act. And in today's passage, we're reading about Jesus, and we're seeing him in the heart of his ministry, in the middle of all the things he's doing, he stops and he takes a look out at the crowds that have been following him throughout all of his ministry. And he looks out at them and and we see that of all the things Christ could have thought and of all the things Christ could have felt when he looked out at those crowds, what Jesus Christ felt was compassion. And it drove him to action. And we'll see that we 
should feel those same feelings of compassion as we look out on the lost as well. Let's look at verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction. So this introductory verse is really a summary for Matthew. He wants you to understand the ministry that Jesus has been going through, the same ministry he's been telling you about for the last several chapters. In fact, this is a summary verse all the way from Matthew chapter 5, five all the way into Matthew chapter 9. He wants to tell you about all the things that Jesus has been doing. He's already told you, now he's just summing it all up. And, and we even read some of that. We studied it not too long ago, beginning of the year. We were studying the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Jim gave a sermon called sermon series called Living Up, where we, where we read through chapters 5 through 7, and we saw the, the teaching that Jesus had. And Matthew goes on to explain that Jesus was doing miracles. He was healing the blind. He was healing the mute and the paralyzed and the sick. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He forgives sins. He calms the storm and the sea. And so in this verse, Matthew really wants to understand the, the depth of the ministry that Jesus has been going through, the extensive scope of his ministry. What does he say about where he's traveled? He's traveled throughout all of the cities and the villages. What kind of sickness has he healed? He's healed every disease and every affliction. Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus' ministry has been extensive and it has been consuming. And it is very likely at this point that Jesus is, is tired. He's been followed by crowds. As he has traveled and taught and healed, they've begun to follow him. We see them over the last four chapters, everywhere he has gone, he has been followed by crowds and confronted by crowds. Across the sea, the crowds are there. He climbs the mountain, the, the crowds are there. Everywhere he goes, he's surrounded by these crowds. And they followed him to listen to his teaching because as we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they say he taught with authority that was unlike anything they had heard. They certainly followed him to see his miracles and to be amazed. They followed him to be healed with their sicknesses and their struggles. They followed him because he demonstrated authority and power and because he offered hope. And Christ had been in the thick of it amongst the people constantly, healing, teaching, ministering, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so we have here this moment that's described in Matthew, sort of this transition between those early chapters and, and the ministry that's to come. And it's sort of this moment of reflection, this pause. And many of you have, have, have been in a project where you've, you've kind of had the same sort of pause. You know, there's typically a moment in a large project where you stop. Maybe you finish for the day or you finish one step of the project and you really take a step back and you look at the project. You look at the task. Maybe you're doing a renovation. You're, you're painting and repairing floors and switching out furniture and things. And you stop and you take a look and you say, okay, uh, well, I've done the demo. I stripped the walls. We've covered the floors. Okay, and now I can see, I can see, I can identify these obstacles. I can kind of see, it looks like it's going to take me about another week, you know. So this is sort of a moment like this where Jesus is pausing and he's looking out and he's pausing his ministry. He's looking out over these crowds that he's been among for the last months in doing this ministry. And he's looking out and considering. And just imagine that moment, what have been, what might have been Jesus's responses? What might he have felt? What might you have felt if you had been in that spot where you had been surrounded by the crowds for months on end doing all of this ministry? When he looks out, he could have seen a lot of things. He could have seen just an unending stream of needy people because that was who was out there. 
It was an unending stream of needs. For every person he healed, there was another person behind him asking for healing. No matter how well he taught, they were always slow to hear, slow to listen, slow to understand. It's sort of this never-ending project. I don't know if you've ever been in a project like that where you get started, you work for several hours, and you look and you realize, oh, I've only got about another 15 days of work to go. You realize the project seems to never end. This is the project he looks on. He looks on the people, and he could have seen just an unending stream of needy people. And he could have been frustrated and burnt out and turned away from that ministry. He could have seen in them a rebellious crowd of sinners because... That's who they were. You see it over and over again. Jesus is forgiving sin. He's seeing people who, who are in the struggles they're in because of sin. Instead of taking the scriptures to heart, they had ignored or twisted them to their own comforts and desires. It's the latest in a long line of generations that has failed to follow God faithfully, and they are reaping what they have sown. It is just for them to be struggling in their sin. He could have seen them as serving out the penalty of their sin. That was there. That was in that crowd he looked at. He could have looked at them and declared judgment. He should have sh could have shaked his head, turned his back, and left them to deal with it. He could have looked at this crowd and seen his enemies. He knows how fickle the crowds are. He knows that his enemies are among them because he's already confronted them. He knows what is to come. He's not naive. He's not ignorant. He could see in the crowds the fickle mob that would soon enough turn on him and shout, crucify him, spitting on him and mocking him. He could see those who were so enamored of their sin that they would not turn away from it, that they would turn on him instead. That was there. That was the crowd he looked at. He could have seen any of those things. He could have looked out at them and called down armies of angels. He could have crushed these people who would dare to stand against God. So what does Jesus see when he looks out on these crowds? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks out at the crowd, he saw the harassed. He saw people who were struggling under the weight of life's struggles, who were beaten down. He saw the helpless. He saw the downcast. They had lost hope. They didn't know where to turn. They had no help. He saw them living lives without direction and purpose. In those crowds, as Jesus looks out, he really sees the people of Israel. These are the people who had belonged to God for a thousand years. They had inherited the promises of Abraham and David. They had inherited the promised land. They had returned from exile. They had rebuilt the temple. They had rededicated themselves to God. But now, after years and years, they were losing hope. They were feeling lost. They were politically subjugated by Rome. They were spiritually stagnant. Their leaders were in factions and were concerned with the minutest detail of religious behavior, but not with hearts that serve God. The hope of the Messiah was slowly fading as the years passed by and things got worse and worse. When Jesus looks out at them, he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost, helpless, directionless, harassed, and beaten down. And Jesus' response is to feel compassion. He feels a heartfelt sympathy and concern for his people, for these crowds that he has been ministering among 
Instead of seeing their unending needs and responding with frustration and exhaustion, instead of seeing their ongoing sin and responding in judgment, instead of seeing them as his enemies to be opposed and crushed, he sees their broken state and Jesus feels compassion for these hurting people. So can I ask you this morning, when you look out on the crowds around you, when you look out on the people that you share your everyday life with, when you look out on the people that you see on the news or in the media or on Facebook, how do you see them? Your, na- your coworkers, your neighbors, and your friends, think about those people, the people who drive next to you on your way to work or as you go to errands or the, or the workers who work in the stores that you frequent. How, how, do, you, how do you see them? What about some of the harder ones? Let's think about some of the people who always seem to be asking for something. The ones who always seem to be in some sort of trouble or crisis. You know, you know those people who are always stuck in a bind. What about the people who haven't made the choices you think they should or who seem committed to sin? You know some of those people. There are people you see and you say they are far from God and they don't even care. What about the people who you think are wrong about politics or the people who you think are wrong about race or who are wrong about immigration or who are wrong about sexuality and you look at them and how do you, how do you see those people? Do you see them as people to avoid? Do you see them as maybe they're, they're mostly okay, they don't need your help? Do you see them as far from God? I'm sorry. Do you see them that they, they, they're reaping what they've sown? If they're struggling, it's because they deserve it, because they've made the wrong decisions. Or are you angry at the sin of the world and you're hoping for justice and you hope that they get what they deserve? What are the things you see when you look out on the lost? It's easy to let a justified frustration and our own desire for righteousness cloud our compassion for the lost or crowd it out. And it's true that sin has consequences. It's true that there is justice coming and judgment coming for sin. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul goes on, after that statement of judgment, he goes on to remind us of Christ's compassion. In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of us. The things we see out there and that we hate And such were some of us. The things that deserve judgment, that was us. Jesus could have seen us as just an unending stream of needy people because that's that's who we were. He could have seen us as a rebellious crowd of sinners because, surprise, that's who we were. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of glory to God. 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He could have left us to our own devices earning death and getting what we deserve. He could have seen us as his enemies because scripture says that's who we were. 
He could have recognized us as those who have opposed him, and he could have crushed us. But Jesus looks at us, and he had compassion. And he responded to us by giving his life so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He responds to us with compassion to reconcile us to himself, to give us a new relationship with our loving Father. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were his enemies, yet Jesus Christ died for us. Christ looked on us with compassion. He saw our need and our burdens and our helplessness and our hopelessness and our blindness, and he died for us, paying the price for our sins. He rescued us so that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead will be saved. So I encourage you this morning that we must see the brokenness of others in the same way that Christ saw our brokenness and responded to us and had compassion for us. We must have compassion for the lost and for the broken and for the blinded, just as Christ has had for us. Consider the loss without Christ, that just like us, everyone has rebelled against God. They've gone their own way and they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Consider that, that sin has crippled this world, it has corrupted man and nature, and it has left men and women struggling with sickness, with loss, with pain, anger, jealousy, frustration, and hatred. Consider that sin has blinded those without Christ. And they have no direction, no relationship to their creator, no shepherd to lead them. And that without Christ, they have no lasting hope. There's no hope in eternity, no hope in good works. There's no hope for lasting peace and joy. There's no hope in the midst of sickness and in death. And that because of their sin and without Christ, they are bound for an eternity in hell as judgment for their sins. When you look at the lost, realize that that is the context that they're in. That is the situation they're in. The scriptures are clear. Do you, do you believe them? Think about the people around you every day. Think about the people who sit in, next to you at work. Think about the people that you see at the store and realize that without Christ, each one of them is destined for an eternity in hell. When Christ saw the crowds, he saw them harassed and broken and helpless, and he had compassion them. When Christ saw us, he saw us buried under the weight of our sin and blinded to it, and he had compassion for us. When you look at the lost, how will you respond? Will you respond with compassion or with indifference? What does it say about us when we know the lost are broken, but we're unwilling to tell them about the Christ who offers forgiveness and peace? And why? It's, it's because it's an awkward conversation. What does it say about us when it's too hard to meet the lost or build a relationship with a lost person? And so we're willing to let them go into eternity without Christ in hell because it's just too hard. I don't just say that to you. I'm, I'm saying it to myself. I was convicted as I considered this passage. 
and I hope you're convicted this morning. What does it say about me? How callous must I be to let the people around me, blinded by sin, slowly drift towards hell and hold my tongue? How selfish am I to protect my own immediate comfort at the cost of somebody else's eternity? May God break our hearts for the lost. May God give us the heart of Christ for our neighbors and for our city, that when we see them, we can be moved with compassion. And as we go on reading, we see that compassion for Jesus is not just a feeling, but it leads to action. Jesus has an action that pairs with that compassion. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As Jesus looks out over the crowds and considers the work that remains, he sees that the task before him is huge. You've been in a project like that. I've described it already. Where You're in the middle of, let's say you started working on a paper and you finish a couple of pages and you look and you think, okay, great. Only 30 more pages to go, right? You know? You've been in that task before where you look and it seems unending. Well, Jesus looks at this task and he looks at the harvest and he says, the harvest is plentiful. It is ready. It is huge. Christ and his disciples had begun the work, but there was so much more to be done. The good news would need to be proclaimed throughout Israel. And as Jesus knew as he looked out, it's going to go much further beyond Israel. The harvest is plentiful. And as Jesus sees the harvest, he calls on the disciples to pray. And the reason he does that is because only God can provide the resources for a God-sized mission. As God ordains the mission, only he can provide the resources that are needed for it. That Jesus tells the disciples to pray shouldn't really be a surprise for us, should it? And praying is not exactly a new instruction in the Bible. It's not new to us. Even the casual observer of Christianity would say that prayer is probably a pretty important part of what we're supposed to be doing. Scripture is full of examples of prayer, including Christ himself praying on a regular basis. Of course, prayer should be the first thing we turn to, right? It shouldn't surprise us that prayer is there, except that often we're still surprised, aren't we? We're still a little surprised. We see a big task, a giant project, a lofty, a lofty objective, and our first instinct is to get to work. Our first instinct start breaking it down, figuring out how to solve it. We want to skip verse 38. We want to go from verse 37 straight into chapter 10. It would read like this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority and started divvying up the task. When we picture this, uh, when you start reading it, you think, I see Jesus seeing this huge task. And what he does is he calls over the disciples. He calls over his guys. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Lays out a map. James, John, I want you to be in Capernaum. You're going to be based out of Capernaum, right? Peter, I want you in the countryside over here. They start divvying up the task. They start arguing about who's going to cover what cities, right? That's the way we, we tend to approach the task. We want to divide it up. We want to conquer it. But God has not called us to a man-sized mission that we can manage on our own. Proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, teaching his word, bringing people to Christ. These are supernatural works of the spirit of God. We have to rely on God. We can't do it on our own. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new has come. 
a new creation. The Bible says that when you come to Christ, you've died and you're resurrected to a new life. How many of you guys are ready to perform a resurrection? How many of you guys are ready to bring somebody back to life? It is not a man-sized task to preach the gospel. It is not a man-sized task to minister, to teach the word, to bring people to Christ. These are supernatural works of the spirit. They are miracles. I can't do it. You can't do it. Only God can do it. And so when God gives us the mission, we have to rely on him. We have to first turn to him in prayer. It's what God does, isn't it? It's what Jesus tells him to pray to the Lord of the harvest. This is his harvest. We're calling for help from the only one who can give it. And as we go out to minister in his name and proclaim the gospel, we must start with prayer, continue with prayer, and pray all the way through because it is God who does the work. We call on God who commands it and who can do it and who has sent us and who empowers us. So I encourage you as you look at the mission, don't skip verse 38. Don't skip prayer and move straight to the task. Consider that prayer is the task, that God is the one who does the work. And what are they asking the Lord of the harvest for? To send out laborers into his harvest. A plentiful harvest requires lots of laborers, but the laborers are, laborers are few. Christ has been doing the work. His disciples have been doing the work. The Pharisees and the scribes, they weren't good for it. They weren't prepared to do this sort of work. John the Baptist is in jail at this point. Jesus is looking out and says, there's a great harvest. We need workers. We need faithful followers who can follow, who can minister, who can proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And there is still to this day a great harvest out there. It's no longer just Israel. Now we look out and we see it is the world. We have been commissioned to make disciples of all nations. And it's Glen Allen and it's your workplace and it's your gym Students, it's your soccer team, it's your school, it's your friend. It's your neighborhood and it's my neighborhood. And we've been commissioned and commanded to make disciples of all nations. And so with hearts of compassion, let us pray for more laborers for the harvest, that more would be willing to go out and to share the gospel. Let's pray passionately asking God for that, that we can proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Let's pray for our church Let's pray that we would send out more laborers into the harvest, whether it's in India or whether it's in South America or whether it's in China or whether it's right here in our city in Glen Allen or in Canada or wherever it is. Let's pray that our church would be sending out laborers for the harvest and let us commit ourselves to the harvest. As we look at this passage, we see that Christ and the disciples are praying for laborers for the harvest, but that doesn't mean they're praying that they're done. They have been doing the ministry already. They've been drowning in this ministry. They've been all over it, right? In every town and city, healing every disease and affliction. And then you see in chapter 10, they continue the ministry. So even as they're praying, they are performing the ministry. They are already in on the task. And you and I have been commissioned. We have been commanded to make disciples. We are already in on the task. We are called to commit ourselves to the harvest as Jesus and the disciples did. So as we conclude the passage, how will we cultivate this compassion of Christ so that we can see the lost with his eyes and be moved to act? I think the first step should be obvious. We've already talked about we cultivate it through prayer, don't we? 
We pray for God's eyes of compassion. We pray for the lost. We pray that we would begin to see people as he sees them, not in judgment, but in compassion, seeing their broken state and praying for them. We pray for laborers for the harvest. It's Christ's heart that we're after and his spirit lives in us. Let's ask God to move his spirit within us to transform our hearts for the lost. So will you begin praying for Christ's compassion for the lost? I urge you to. And I urge you to pray specifically, to put some faces, put some names on these prayers. Pray specifically. I encourage you to go today, even while you're here, I encourage you, write down five names of people you know who you think are lost without Christ and need to hear the gospel. They can be people you live next to. They can be people you, you work with, people you see as you're out shopping, uh, friends of your kid's uh, soccer team, whatever. Right? Write down five names, put, the, put those faces in your mind, and begin praying for those five people. You want to build compassion for the lost, pray for the lost, but pray specifically for some people that you know that need to know Christ. Begin praying for them daily. Pray that God would great, grant you greater compassion for them, opportunities to minister to them, and that he would open doors for you to speak to them about Christ. I also encourage you, life groups. In your life group, create some time. As you're talking about prayer requests and all the different things that we pray for, create some time to begin praying for and sharing about these people that you are looking at, that you are ministering to, that you are sharing with. Pray for them. Pray for opportunities. Share about how God is using you in their lives. I encourage life groups to begin encouraging each other and praying with each other for the lost. Another way that we generate this compassion is by regularly being in his word. If you want the heart of God, then you read his word because that's where it is. Even this passage today transforms our hearts. Be regularly in his word. His word and prayer and the spirit work in your hearts to change you to be more like him. And then I encourage you to be active in ministry. As you see Christ's heart for the crowds, he doesn't, he's not looking out at crowds he doesn't know anything about. He's not looking out at crowds he's never interacted with. He's looking out at crowds that he has been ministering to, that he has been already sharing the gospel with. He's looking out at crowds where he knows their burdens and their struggles. He's looking out at crowds that he has spent time among over and over again. And that drives his compassion. And then in turn, his compassion drives his ministry. And so if you want compassion for the lost, I encourage you to get plugged into ministry and spend the time. A starting place for ministry can be right here in the church. We have a great task to make disciples that we are doing here as a part of our church. Our children's ministry needs people who are willing to make disciples among the children. They need to hear about the love of Christ. They need to give their lives over to Christ. They need to grow in him. Will you, can you minister in that way? We have some opportunities. Get signed up. Be a part of ministry. Our student ministry has some of those same needs. Life group leaders. We need life group leaders. We need people who are even willing to greet at the front doors. So when a lost person comes in our front door, they know that they are loved. They know that they are welcome. They know that there is something here for them to hear about Christ's love for them. So I encourage you to get involved in ministry. But don't let it stop right here in the church. This is not the stop, stopping point for ministry. It's a starting point. I encourage you to get involved in ministry with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. There's no way to have compassion for people that you're not willing to get to know. Get to know the five you're praying for. Take an interest in people. Listen to their stories and their needs. Take the opportunity to serve and care for someone who is struggling. 
Take the time to build relationships with people and share with them how Christ has changed your life. I know it's not easy. I know there's a million things going on. But if we're going to have compassion for the lost, we have to know the lost. And if you don't know where to start, I encourage you to go to our website and sign up for Bless Every Home. It's a tool to help you begin praying for and ministering to your, your neighbors. So it will help you track your prayers. It will help you track your ministry to them. It will help you be reminded to pray for them on a regular basis. You can go that on our outreach ministries page. Finally, if you're here today and you're wondering how Christ sees you, and you think he might be angry or you think he might be frustrated or impatient or you wonder if he has given up on you, let me encourage you to see this passage today and realize that Christ sees you with compassion. He knows the struggles and the burdens you carry. He knows the good and the bad of your life. He knows the wrong things you've done. He knows the sin that has burdened you. He has compassion for the downcast and the harassed and the helpless and the hopeless. He has forgiveness for the sinner. He died for your sin and he offers you a new life in him if you'll give your life over to him. So we saw today when Christ saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. His love for them ran so deep that he was willing to give his life ultimately for them to pay the price for their sins. He, his love for us ran so deep that he gave his life for us to pay the price for our sins and redeem us and give us a relationship with him. How can we not develop and demonstrate that same compassion for others who are far from him? Let's pray for laborers. Let's pray for compassion. Let's pray for our neighbors. And let's step into a ministry that honors the love of Christ. Let's pray right now.